We immortals need our gains, Doctor. Eternity is long, and we are cursed to see it all. The Eternals have their games. The Guardians have their power struggles. For me, this dimension is a beautiful board for a game. The Toymaker would approve. This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you most welcome. Welcome. This is the Doctor Who podcast, and today you have James. Hello, James. Hello, Michelle. Hello, everyone. And uh, we're doing perhaps our first cross-continental review of a current episode, looking at Can You Hear Me? The show has just aired. uh, James has had a little bit more time to to think about it than I have. I think he's had nearly a whole hour to come to grips with it, and and, Mm. uh, I literally just saw the episode minutes ago, so... Once again, you'll get thoughts that aren't thought through. Well, is this one where an instant reaction is likely to differ significantly from a considered one? Perhaps not. You know, perhaps oh, not. Okay, um, I thought you were going to say yes. Um, <laughs> and I, I, I'm thinking back to um, Fugitive of the Jadoon, and uh, I, I remember my instant reaction wasn't really much of a reaction. It was just a bunch of garbled words with a few interesting noises. Um, whereas I, I would hope a week or so later I would be able to talk about it slightly, slightly more articulately. But uh, but this one, I have a feeling that what I feel now may evolve and develop the next time I see it. But uh, we'll, we'll see. I mean, if, if you've literally just come off the back of the end credits... Let, let me ask you, um, how are you feeling? What did you think? I think I generally enjoyed this one. Um, there is some things to think about. It's similar to some of the others we've had this season, and it's kind of jumping around between multiple locations, multiple viewpoints, and then having everything kind of coalesce for the second part. I like, once again, the idea that the, each of the companions was given their own little storyline to follow, which also then became quite unified near the end. I loved the reappearance of Eternals. I mean, there was the the moment where they began rattling off things that old series fans will like, Eternals and Guardians, and that kind of put in context for me, uh, as a fan of the old series, what this was all about in terms of who these villains were. Mm. Uh, and I, pre- I appreciated dipping back into to that mythology. Once again... There is sort of a strong message, but once again, I kind of think it's an important message, so it'll be interesting to see how that plays with folks. But all in all, I think this is going to be another one that is going to be on the thumbs up side for me. What what did you think? I I don't disagree with a lot of what you say. I I think the sci-fi story suffered massively. uh, at the expense of the message it's trying to get across, which I think it did really really well 
it's it's clearly an important message, but um, it was a real tonal mess. I mean, as as far as I can see, I, there was absolutely no reason for the inclusion of the scene set in Aleppo in in Syria. Why weren't um, these kind of manifestations elsewhere in the time-space continuum? Why was it just Sheffield and Aleppo? You know, I mean, I don't think these cities are twins or related in any way. It was another one of these slow burn stories, which we saw last week as well. And and the intrigue and the sense of jeopardy that slowly escalates and builds up throughout the episode was tangible, very, very clear. And I enjoyed that. But it just spent too long getting somewhere. And, and the reason why the journey, I think, was it felt particularly unsatisfying this time was because the sci-fi resolution was absolutely hapless. And, and, and you know all it really consisted of was the Doctor waving a sonic screwdriver and into the orb these new gods went and bang, story gone, so they could concentrate on the mental health message that was front and centre here. And uh, I, I just felt that, you know, I mean have a social message doctor who should have a message every now and again i think that's really really important the classic series did exactly the same you know particularly prominently in john pertwee's era but also in lots of other other eras as well and yet it wasn't as ham-fisted as this and the story didn't suffer i mean if, if you look at stories like the silurians the sea devils warriors of the deep perhaps is not a great example <laughs> but th- those are the kind of stories that are fantastic in their own rights mm. they just happen to have an ecological message you know underpinning things there as well i mean you look at the social commentary within the long game and i know again the long game is not held up as a paragon of brilliant new doctor who but it's still watchable and the message is interwoven in that story in such a way that it doesn't come round and to use Ian's analogy, whack you round the head. And that's what I <laughs> felt like. The last few episodes is that the message is the all important thing at the expense of a traditional time travel sci-fi story. So yes, I was intrigued by it. Did I enjoy it? Not very much. I think the overall question really is that we've had three, and one could almost argue four, but the other one was subtle, stories that had a definite theme, a definite message um, this season. And I wonder if, you know, if over the course of 10 stories or so, if you had one or two of those, you know, maybe one in the first half of the season and one later on somewhere in the second half of the season, whether that would be as bothersome as it may be for folks to have three or four stacked up right in a row. I I really don't think so. I don't think people object to having messages in Doctor Who. They never have done in the past, really. And I don't think they they do now. Um, And if, if people do have an issue with Doctor Who having a social commentary, then quite frankly, why are you watching a show? It always has had. Mm -hmm. What I have a problem with is that it's not doing it as well as it used to do it 40 years ago. (laughs) Just do it better. As far as I'm concerned, if if you want to be deliberately inflammatory, have a Jerry Springer message of the week every week. You know, to a degree, Star Trek The Next Generation did that. Mm -hmm. But just make the story better. And for me, this time round, the story was was like the necessary shell that 
the message had to have in order to be told. And, and Doctor Who, if it's going to tackle these really difficult social issues, cannot compromise on what made it successful in the first place. And that's the ability to tell an enthralling tale about an interesting lead character. And I think that was lacking this evening. It did cross my mind the way that the Doctor was quite deliberately targeting a particular date uh, on on Earth um, and she got it to within, what was it, to within an hour or something or an hour and a half that she was aiming for. 77 minutes or something. And can you imagine what Tegan Yovanka must be thinking now? You know, one attempt and it was a couple of hours out and it was like three series back in the day (laughs) (laughs) before they could even get close to Heathrow. It's... quite funny i suppose but just a just a small thing (laughs) various doctors have had various successes at being able to fly the tardis and get it where they want to go and it does seem that the the later the new series doctors have been better at uh yeah, piloting the yeah, TARDIS yeah. than perhaps some of the earlier ones but see that that does that doesn't bother me that doesn't bother me do, do you know it's almost the same as last week as well you know where the doctor materialized the TARDIS around oh yeah an individual hurtling to you know to their death Adric must be really narked. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know it's, it's stuff like that. I, I gotta say, I, I do quite enjoy enjoy watching. I found the overall tone of this story, and I suppose this was necessary given the obvious thing they were trying to get across. But bleak and depressing, and and, and the music kind of dragged you down, and you know, it, I, I, it was dark. This one felt more serious than some and and boy when they got to the point where they were talking about the boogeyman with the child in the bed i thought this is really really scary yeah Um, yeah yeah and yeah no and the whole idea of sucking people's nightmares out of kind of forcing them to dream nightmares to to feed some elemental it was it was dark it really it really was dark and so It was creepy. It was creepy. It was macabre. It was creepy. It, yeah. Stuff of nightmares. For me, no problem with that whatsoever. I actually quite like the tone of the show. Um, perhaps not in keeping with traditional Doctor Who in, in in as much as it was horrific, but the horror wasn't the main the main thing you're, you're, you're left with. The thing that you're left with at mm-hmm. the end is that everybody's got their own inner demons to face. And, you know, it's... it's and, they're, and they're easier to face if you talk about them and... Yeah, yeah, share yeah. them. Well, I, I also thought the Yaz story I thought was really hammed up terribly. Um, I, I know it was quite hard hitting and it, the dialogue was very good, but I tell you, that policewoman that she ended up meeting on the roads, presumably just at, outside Sheffield, talk about super cop. Can you imagine? Any child that goes missing, she goes out, she remembers their name three years later, she's able to have an impact in that child's life. It just struck me as unrealistic dialogue. Did I like it? Did I watch it? Did I lap it up? Yes, but it didn't feel real to me at all. You know, it's interesting. I would love to hear feedback from the listeners of people who maybe have worked in those kind of professions about how realistic that might be when a police officer or or any other person in a, in a a helping profession tries to you know talk someone down or bring someone back i um 
my theory is that that's not as unusual as you might think, James, but... Um, I, I don't think it's, it would be as extreme. I, I think, you know, the, there is a degree of social work involved in policing and you could argue, as many do, there's too much <laughs> uh, mm. social work, you know, rather than actual law and enforcement. But, it, I mean, it was it was an interesting scene. I just didn't buy that particular, that story strand for, for Yaz. And, of course, she's now got a little bit more development or her character uh, we, we know a little bit more about her and why presumably she was inspired to enter the police force because yeah. of you know yeah. and it, it, I just wonder whether or not this was another attempt um, or response perhaps to the amount of criticism that you know Yaz was an interesting character well acted but too shallow in terms of character that's that's pretty much what you know, the noise seemed to be from Famden last mm-hmm. season. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think you can say that this time round, and she is interesting, but for me it was just a little bit too too sickly. <laughs> I think it's probably the best way of putting it. <laughs> I, for me, it's more that it's kind of dropped in there when you haven't really seen any hints beforehand. I, I actually, again, I'm a little more optimistic that that sequence was potentially believable. I also think the reason that the the police officer may have remembered her name, um, I mean, you know, aside from the fact that she probably brought her home that day after that conversation with her up on the moor, but Yaz went into the police force and it's, see, to me, it's quite possible that another police officer would be aware somehow of the names of the recruits that are graduating or entering the force and would have, would have taken note. Uh, of that, even if she wouldn't be the one to reach out to Yaz, that she may have known what was going on. So I guess I'm just more trusting on that plot line. (laughs) I've seen some discussion online in my very brief period between watching this and, and talking to you, Michelle, about how the Doctor handled Graham's story at the end. Just out of curiosity, what was it? Was it critical, or what, what? What was the response? Yeah, it has been, and I think it's. I think that is actually wrong to be critical. Uh, they're saying yeah. that actually, <laughs> um, you know, Graham reached out to the doctor, and the doctor said, "Well, I suppose you want me to say something <laughs> really helpful and insightful, but I'm not going to." <laughs> I, and I'm, I'm still socially challenged, or whatever. Whatever yeah, the line was, I actually, yeah. I probably fall on the side of liking the scene the way it played when Graham got into that and he was talking to the doctor I thought oh how is this going to go because the doctor has traditionally not been real good with those kind of conversations I mean most of them would not have been real good with those kind of conversations so I thought are they going to change this particular doctor into one that has all that empathy um, and is willing to do that kind of work or able to do that kind of work and so when she (laughs) when she gave him that kind of bewildered look I I mean just to for the doctor just to say you know I can't do this this isn't this isn't my skill is is something right there but I thought it I thought it was in keeping with the doctor that we know and it doesn't it doesn't make her heartless it doesn't make her not care it's just that's not the skill that the doctor, <laughs> the doctor has many skills, but that kind of that kind of empathy is not one of them. And yet, I think it was balanced by the very last scene when they are about to take off to go see Frankenstein, <laughs> and 
as she's about ready to to throw all the switches on the TARDIS console, the the camera had this had this glance at each of the three companions and the looks that they are giving the doctor, and it really is a look of utter tr- utter trust, you know, companionship. Um, you know, we're on to the next thing. It doesn't it doesn't change the bond that is there that the doctor doesn't have that particular empathic skill. And mm. I think it was, I, I will also say that um, Graham, um, oh, remind me of the actor's name. Bradley Walsh. Yeah, he played that scene brilliantly. I mean, when he's making that confession and saying those things to the doctor, he's he's incredibly brilliant. But it's totally in keeping that the doctor would kind of say, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> well, it, it, really interesting. Um, I, and I kind of agree with your take on it. I can certainly see how it all makes sense that way. But I, I have a slightly different spin on it. And that mm-hmm. is the fact that actually that is exactly what Graham needed to hear at that point from the doctor. The doctor didn't and shouldn't have come out with something incredibly important. It was just an acknowledgement that actually Graham has vocalised something that he hasn't in the past he needs to talk about it he did articulate it and actually what a doctor therefore said was almost totally incidental so a little bit of fluff that is perfectly in keeping with as as, as you said the doctor's character over the regenerations is absolutely spot on you know the ninth doctor didn't do families <laughs> Tenth yeah, doctor yeah, did yeah, a little yeah. more. <laughs> this know, doctor's but, come a long way actually no i actually i i think you i think you may be onto something as well either way it works the same for me and i think we both agree yeah, that that scene yeah. actually wasn't out of place and and if i've seen quite a bit of dissent or people making negative comments it was actually my doctor is a little nicer than that and i think that's mm. to misread the scene but well and and there's different ways to be nice um you know this doctor you know she'd lay her down her life for her companions i have no doubt but she doesn't do that kind of conversation well and that's okay <laughs> Um, right, yeah, you mentioned the, the callbacks earlier on. Um, Eternals, Guardians, Toymaker. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we are we are back into this mythology. And I like the fact that you used the word mythology a little bit earlier on, Michelle, because it does feel like mm-hmm. that. And uh, a- again, if you think back towards McCoy's era, where you had, uh, was it the gods of Ragnarok in Greatest Show and Fenric at the end. And I think... Mm-hmm. Towards the end of season 26, we were kind of being asked to believe that the Doctor was a little bit more than just a Time Lord uh, uh, as well. So perhaps he operated on a slightly different plane as well. And of course, we never really saw the resolution to that intriguing storyline. I'm not certain I liked revisiting that that era. And I, I, I guess you could argue... We oh, I was of- thinking Fifth Doctor... I was thinking Fifth Doctor, you know, oh, Turlo and the Eternals. Oh, uh, the, the, Eternals and Guardians, absolutely, and they were directly yeah, referenced. Yeah. No, I, th- I think they're all the same kind of thing. And again, if you look at some yeah. of the, I don't know whether you called it expanded universe, that feels like a Star Wars term, but uh, if you look at the verging new adventures and some of the big finishes, mm. all of those kind of elemental beings have been you know lumped together in i mean so so it's not brand new so this kind of creature who operates on a non-linear and immortal basis uh, that that's not new to doctor who but it's not something i expected them to return to i guess the only flirtation with it 
the new series has had was in the Satan pit, where we never quite got mm. an explanation mm-hmm. for something that may potentially have been slightly more mythical rather you know, this than is, a, a physical This is actually beast. kind of funny. I'm, I'm thinking of Ian's comments uh, last week about how Oh, Doctor Who will never bring back Susan, and oh, Doctor Who will never, you know, bring of back the Ronnie. Of course it will. <laughs> but, 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 you know, here we have an example of exactly that sort of thing. So Ian made me need to revise some of his expectations. Well, it's funny actually. I remember hearing that when Ian said that as well, and I think he must have forgotten already that Susan has returned to this series. Do you not remember the name of the horse in a town called Mercy? Oh no, no. But I was actually thinking about. Wasn't there a picture of her on on? <laughs> The doctor, Peter Capaldi's desk. Yeah, in there was the... in the pilot, absolutely. The, the way things are going at the moment, especially if you take the events of uh, Fugitive of the Judoon into the account, Susan may very well still be alive and just called David or someone. Yeah, we, we, we just don't know <laughs> at this moment in time. <laughs> Who knows what Time Lords are capable of? In, well, maybe we're about to find out <laughs> towards the end of this season, perhaps. But, yeah. uh... <laughs> well, and we did have we did have another we had another nod to the Timeless Child. Well, um, Timeless Child featured in The Doctor's Nightmare, which I found yeah. interesting. So clearly, this is a bad thing. Timeless Child is a bad thing. Hmm. And, At least uh, from her perspective. Absolutely. And and I know you discussed this with, um, with Stephen as well on the last episode, but uh, Stephen was very, very clear in his view that Chris Chibnall has said, nope, Jack's not coming back, and nope, you're not getting an answer to the Timeless Child. And, you know, uh, obviously I love Stephen, bless him, but I don't believe (laughs) everything I hear, (laughs) and I don't believe everything the showrunner says. And I would be surprised if we didn't get at least a little bit more on the Timeless Child towards the end of this season. And in fact, I, I don't think... Chibnall would really have set that hair running if he wasn't going to at least partially address it by the end of the season. And I, and I do think we will see Jack again. <laughs> he may well have been on set for just one day. Uh, but I think all of these all of these things that are, have, have been set running this season will have, you know, first of all, they'll all tie together. Um, Jack's return will be linked to the Timeless Child, which will be linked to Dr. Ruth, I am certain of it. Um, They're not going to be separate storylines. Chris Chibnall, if I'm being particularly rotten, is the master of the anticlimactic ending. Um, (laughs) I think that was true in this story. It's certainly been true in others as well. Uh, But he's going to end up disappointing quite a lot of people if he doesn't resolve all of these really intriguing storylines that he's, uh, he's started over the last few episodes. What do you think about this doctor providing a voiceover <laughs> when her when she's on her own? Because uh, it happened happened twice in this this episode. Do you mean where she's just talking to herself, or do you mean that wasn't it last episode where Praxius where that it actually yeah. opened with a voiceover from her and and closed? I'm being slightly facetious. Um, voiceover is an absolute trope from Chris Chibnall, and yes, it was in Praxius. However. Whenever the Doctor was on her own in this story, she basically gave herself a running comment or gave the audience you know, a running I, commentary. I actually don't mind at all because that's the way she is. That is in keeping with her character. And and some, I mean, there were times when Tom Baker was on the, on his own that he was speaking to himself as well. Um, I, but this particular Doctor is so verbal. I mean, she's always talking a million <laughs> yeah. miles a minute. That yeah. it, it does not surprise me at all that she 
<laughs> it's like an ultimate extrovert doctor. Doesn't surprise me at all that she would continue talking when nobody else is in the room. Uh, and then when she discovers that nobody else is in the room, she'll just keep keep talking. I, that that that's just this doctor, and I think it totally fits. It also happens to be convenient for storytelling. Well, that's uh, it, you see. But and I don't but I don't mind too, uh, because unlinked. it fits. It really she she's a talker, and she'll talk regardless. So I, I, that doesn't bother me at all. But the doctor's always convinced the doctor is the most brilliant person in the room. And so, you know, I think the doctor's more interested in hearing what the doctor has to say than just about anything else, too. So it just, I just think it's totally in keeping. No, absolutely. It definitely, definitely fits. One last point then that I wanted to, to, to make, and this is, uh, I'm not quite sure what you would call this, because um, it wasn't really a special effect. But when the doctor was uh, captured, and she had her, she was manacled above her head. And the way that she got out of that by somehow managing to flick her sonic screwdriver in an extremely unconvincing way uh, into her into her hand, I thought actually was really lazy. And, and it's the one point at which my, my wife said, ridiculous, <laughs> as she yeah, was watching it. So. I wish they'd had some sort of throwaway line to explain that. I mean, it could be that the doctor has gotten into so many fixes by now that, that she has programmed you know, some sort of feature in the in the sonic screwdriver that it would do that. But there was no well, such jump, line. Jump of its own There volition. was no such line. And so you have to you have to wonder, I mean, had she just squeezed it in the right way against the side of the of the cell, <laughs> the know. cubicle? But it, yeah, I agree. I didn't like that either. And it could have no. been fixed. It would have been easy to be fixed. It looked odd. <laughs> Let's yeah, put it, it did. That way. It, it did. It looked odd. But uh, on, on the whole, I, I would say that, yeah, you know, one of the creepiest episodes of Doctor Who, uh, one of the most powerful messages in, in, in Doctor Who. Um, I, I did not like the way the story was told or played out. I thought the story played second fiddle to everything else. Uh, it, this was much more of a character piece. The story was a very loose framework on which everything else was held. And the whole thing was shaped in a, a metaphoric megaphone uh, to uh, to get its its social message across again. As, as valid as it may be, it was uh, it was once again far too on the nose for me to uh, to just kind of say, "Yep, that worked," and and, and enjoy it and move on. Well, I saw it too recently to have a diatribe prepared as you do. <laughs> but this this is natural. <laughs> <laughs> See, you too. Talk. Do you talk to yourself when no one's in the room? <laughs> Well, at any rate, I, I, again, I think as I, as I reflect on this, I'll probably find, you know, I'll begin to see the plot holes and the plot points that you're talking about more. Mm. And, um, but yeah, now I pretty much enjoyed it with just a few qualms. I mean, again, it's not earth shaking. It's not one that, that I'm going to come back to again and again and again. But for an evening of Doctor Who, you know, I enjoyed it. So having talked about Can You Hear Me, it's time, of course, to turn our attention to uh, the member of our caravan who is late for everything, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> I, managed to get, I managed to get here right on the spot on the day of, but, but no, Drew will be back with his week late review of Praxius. Howdy folks, it's Drew with another week late review. Ready for this? Here it comes. <sighs> All right, it goes without saying, even though they said it plenty on episode 306, that anything was going to pale in comparison to Fugitive the Jadoon, in terms of energy, narrative impact, and overall bonkersness. It's, it's, it's a word now. 
So let's quickly chat about Praxius. Number one, I thought the crow puppet was charming. I really did. Number two, I liked the scenery. Say what you will about the Chibnall era, so far, it feels international. Three, like Nikola Tesla's Night of Terror, Praxius feels like it could have been a novel. And unlike Nikola Tesla's Night of Terror, maybe it would have worked better as one. I like a story with mystery, and it's nice to see the Doctor playing catch-up. This one had a lot of plot that sort of fell by the wayside, but ultimately I think it incorporated its message better than, say, Orphan 55. Number four, Yaz! Yay, Yaz! Hey, everybody! Yaz did stuff! Actual stuff! Stuff that wasn't suggested by the doctor. She showed actual initiative, in a, in a way that made me feel like someone actually sat down to write a script and went, Hey, Yaz should do a thing, rather than every other script that felt like, Oh yeah, Yaz is there. Let's, I don't know, let's let her do a thing that one of the other folks was already going to do. Also, unless I'm mistaken, is this the first time Yaz and Graham have gotten to act without Ryan? I'm genuinely asking because I haven't been motivated enough to do a rewatch so far. Hey, here's a big one for me. Number five. Unless Jamila and Gabriella's relationship was more than just vlog buddies, and considering how unupset Gabriella seemed to be with her death, I'm guessing they weren't, then Doctor Who has just delivered an episode where queer characters weren't sacrificed to make a point. So, you know... That's pretty cool, although it does feel kind of dirty congratulating a show for allowing queer and black characters to live to the end of the credits, but... And ultimately, I think what it needed was more time. Certainly not another episode, but if they could have just made, say, ten minutes to flesh out a couple of aspects, I think it would have been uh, just much better. And that's all for me. I'm going to go fly a spaceship now because clearly anyone can do so, and here I used to be impressed by astronauts. Tune in next week when I review this week's episode. Thank you very much, Drew. Yes, I mean, uh, the benefit of waiting for an entire week before you can give your thoughts is that they can be... <laughs> they can be carefully considered, measured, you can re-watch the episode again, uh, you can listen to your fellow hosts on the DWP making large omissions <laughs> in their commentary <laughs> the previous week and go back and sound incredibly articulate. So well done, Drew, um, as probably the most concise and intelligent three minutes uh, the DWP had to say on, on Praxis. <laughs> has and ever, I, has and ever and had? <laughs> Well, maybe. Maybe as ever had. Yes, I wasn't. I didn't mean to deliberately uh, disparage Phil and Ian's comments last week. Um, but but I will say one thing. The crow that uh, Drew mentioned, I have to say, when I was watching that last week, I was reminded of the cat from Survival. Mm. <laughs> so uh, yeah, the animatronic it, it, cat. <laughs> so. It did seem a little odd. Um, you know, I like what, what, what Drew had to say about the scenery and the international feel. That was another thing we got tonight. In fact, uh, with, with Drew's comments in mind, by tonight I mean, you know, can you hear me? Um, the, the visit to Aleppo in this case and, and the beautiful, you know, outside scenery that with, with Yaz and the police officer. I, I am enjoying, I'm enjoying the locations uh, in this whole series. <sighs> I'm also noticing, and I guess it wasn't so much true with Praxius, but it was true again tonight, how much history figures or historic settings figure even in the episodes that end up being future science fiction out there kind of things. I think that's another trend uh, with Chris Chibnall. 
I, I agree. Um, and I, I think it does look great. Um, I, I, I love the kind of style that Chibnall has brought to this season uh, visually. Um, and it, it just looks very different. Um, and, and I like the way that they do zone in, if you like, on, um, on on history a lot more. I think almost every episode has been set on Earth, has it not? Uh, or at least taken place on, on Earth. And we're seven episodes through now. So it's, it's, Earth is clearly a bit more of a, a grounding influence. So it's interesting to see more of it. Uh, I think that's good. But the one, the one thing for me, again, is very similar to last year, is that, you know, make the stories better. Make the stories better. And this will be brilliant <laughs> I, I, think had, I had i think there has been a marginal improvement on on some of the stories but again I, just, just some of the things about the way these ideas are played out on screen it's it just yeah, it's not as satisfying as some of the other stories that we've seen in the past you so, know um, you know one, la- yeah. one last thought on praxis and you're talking about the stories is um big finish had just released in june June 2019, in their Torchwood, their Torchwood series, uh, a story called Sargasso, which was, mm. it did feature the Autons. It was in the middle of the ocean. Sargasso was set in the Atlantic Ocean garbage patch, as this one, as Praxius mm. was set in the Indian okay. Ocean garbage packs, patch. Um, very, very similar things. Of course, there's every reason that Autons would be uh, interested in plastic, I think there may even have been commentary about microplastics uh, in in the Big Finish one, and I I strongly suspect it's all just coincidence. But uh, if if you didn't like this story, you can listen to a Big Finish and not like it, perhaps. But <laughs> <laughs> but but, yes. but but the plot lines were remarkably similar. Okay, well, I I will certainly go back and listen to that because I haven't heard that. Um, But certainly I had heard the rumour that Phil had mentioned about Sea Devils featuring at some point, and I would have thought Sea Devils would have had to have featured in the story development process at least on one occasion. And and Autons, as you say, there must have been not just a discussion but a decision not to use them because, you know, if ever you're looking for a a link back to the show's past and your story Mm -hmm. is about plastic then, you know, it, it would have to be a decision yeah. not to use them as opposed to, you know, not being aware <laughs> um, that, that, that they were there. So, but yeah, in, in, interesting. Um, I, I found Ian's points, or I think it was his wife's points uh, he, he mentioned, um, most interesting. And perhaps this has was addressed in the dialogue and I've just not Well, and it, not I mean, it occurs it. to me that, that, that the praxis bacteria seem to require living hosts. It's not just about finding and eating plastic. Well, that was my point. That was my point, yeah, Yeah, uh, entirely. And I wasn't sure whether or not there was a reason in a script that I'd missed that it had to be in a living organism uh, rather than just a bit of plastic that had been, you know, used to manufacture something. But interesting, interesting. Michelle, it's been wonderful to speak Doctor Who with you again. I can't remember the last time we reviewed an episode shortly after it had transmitted uh, on BBC One. It must be years ago now. Yeah, but, uh, but must, it's, must, go, it's, must go back to before the hiatus of the Doctor Who podcast. It's been, it's been great to speak with you, as always. This is the point at which we need our listeners to get involved and send feedback to all the various places. Feedback at the com. Uh, on Twitter, you'll have to help me with the Twitter one. It's at DR Who Podcast. 
and of course finding the Doctor Who podcast on Facebook. But uh, mm. we really enjoy enjoy the feedback. You can Absolutely. tell us how wrong we both are. <laughs> yes, that would be really good um, I, because I've I've got no real idea actually as to what uh, the fans will make of this this story. Um, I, I suspect I suspect it is it's different um, enough to possibly divide fandom we'll see um you remember last season oh, there was an oh, episode that never called... happens well, <laughs> how could fandom be divided I'm... well you never know um I, i'm just making a prediction and i think it will be you remember last season there was an episode that everyone refers to as the one with the frog oh yes you know what i it t- took me a while it took me a while <laughs> <laughs> well i i have a feeling this one will be remembered in the same way, not because it had a comedic frog or any other amphibian, but because it, it just went everywhere. It went absolutely everywhere. It had sci-fi elements, deep space, went to Syria in 1380, and then it went to Sheffield. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's, mm-hmm. it just had everything, and I think that, I think it will actually stick in people's minds. We shall, we shall wait and see. Anyway, listeners, we shall be back next week to review oh what's what's episode eight called michelle do you know what it's called i have no idea that's interesting can you hear me followed by i have no idea <laughs> <laughs> neither do i um but uh, i'm looking forward to it maybe it's frankenstein um and, and neither are we certain which hosts uh, will be with you this time next week yet either so you've got even more intrigue there as well how about that michelle yes indeed you can start the start the hypothesizing now (laughs) we shall speak to you again soon listeners michelle wonderful to speak to you bye for now everyone bye bye
and I've just turned my backup recorder on and that's recording also um fine so I'm all sorted do you want to lead us into this one? Oh, let's see um just remind me how you lead in <laughs> hello okay I can do that <laughs> this is the Doctor <laughs> Who podcast I'm Michelle okay. and here's James <laughs> you, you probably you, you probably ought to just here's use James. that <laughs> There you go. <laughs> go on, you go okay. for it. I hope that worked as a reminder. Yes, thank you. I'll never forget it now. 